Hello, welcome to Musings on History. Episode 4.13, Chinese Socialism Part 2. Hello and welcome back to Musings on History. Uh, My last episode, I went over the history of socialism in China from its beginnings in the student-led new culture movement and its clashes with the liberal democratic U.S. and Japanese-backed Kuomintang to Mao Zedong's ascension as the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party and in October 1949 as premier of the People's Republic of China. This episode, I'll be discussing the organization of the People's Republic of China, Sino-Soviet relations and the Sino-Soviet split, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, the death of Mao Zedong and the ascension of Deng Xiaoping, the switch from Maoism to socialism with Chinese characteristics, and the eventual ascension of China's current president, Xi Jinping. I covered a lot of ground last episode, so at least this one starts in the mid-20th century. Chapter 1, The PRC Rebuilds and Restructures China. Now, whatever feelings one might have about Mao, Maoism, and Mao's economic vision for China, you can't say that the communists weren't devoted to rebuilding post-war China. By January 1950, mainland China had been in a state of war since the First Opium War of 1840. After that followed the Taiping Rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion, the fall of the Qing Dynasty, the Second Sino-Japanese War, World War I, the invasion of Manchuria, the Chinese Civil War, and then World War II. All of this armed conflict, plus unstable leadership throughout mainland China with Manchu warlords in the northwest, Japanese Manchukuo in the northeast, and the southern and central parts of China continually changing hands between the Kuomintang and the CCP, meant that the economic development and infrastructure building was sporadic and uneven, and most of what was there had been ravaged by war. Agriculture sorry, had also taken a very big hit over the last hundred years with most of the arable land either in the hands of brutal absentee landlords or otherwise scarred by war. Part of what made Mao Zedong stand out from the warlords, the foreign invaders, and KMT leadership was his concern for and commitment to the peasantry. Mao was himself a peasant, albeit a prosperous one, from Qingxia in Hunan province. His family earned their living from the land, and Mao's childhood and adolescence were spent working the land. So it makes sense that as his class consciousness developed, he would consider peasants as the most vital piece of a Chinese communist society. Mao was also fervent about political education, having founded the Self-Study University in the early days of the Xinhai Revolution, so that people could have access to revolutionary reading material. He also joined the YMCA mass education movement to combat illiteracy. Mao frequently clashed with both Chinese and Russian communist apparatchiks throughout the First and Second Revolutionary War periods because he insisted on the revolutionary potential of the peasantry over the urban industrial workers. In the 1930s, Mao wrote a series of essays about the revolutionary potential of the peasantry, including how to differentiate the classes in the rural areas, where he breaks down who the landlords, rich peasants, middle peasants, poor peasants, and workers were. The classes of peasants are characterized by the amount of land and farm instruments they own and their reliance on the labor of others versus their own labor to survive. 
At the top, of course, are landlords who own most of the land and do the least, if any, labor. At the bottom are the workers who don't own any land and make their living entirely from selling their labor. While in the Jiangxi and Yan'an Soviets, Mao and the Red Army engaged in collectivist farming, often seizing the lands of the KMT-aligned landlords and establishing farming communes that provided the Soviet with food in exchange for protection, medical care, and education. It was in the Yan'an Soviet that Maoism was born, where Mao stated that in order for Marxist-Leninist theory to work in China, it must be adapted to suit Chinese conditions. While in Russia in 19 while Russia in 1970 was not as industrialized as its western neighbors, the 1917 revolution began in the cities amongst the urban Soviets and the defecting military. China in 1949 was even less industrialized than Russia in 1917, and so Mao wrote in Problems of Strategy in China's Revolutionary War. China's Revolutionary War, whether civil war or national war, is waged in the specific environment in China, and so has its own specific circumstances in nature, distinguishing it from both war in general and revolutionary war in general. Therefore, besides the laws of war in general and of revolutionary war in general, it has specific laws of its own. Unless you understand that, you will not be able to win in China's revolutionary war. The characteristics that Mao outlined were that China was a semi-colonial state with uneconomic, uneven economic growth, where multiple political factions allied and turned on one another so often that no one had just one enemy at a time. He also noted that China is a vast country, which gives each side more room to maneuver in war, which in turn splits loyalties amongst the people and makes everyone more susceptible to foreign intervention. He also noted that China had already undergone one revolution, so incubating a revolutionary spirit into the people would be less difficult, and that the Communist Party leadership represented the peasantry, and so the peasants stood by them, despite the KMT being larger and better armed. Last episode, I talked about how guerrilla warfare can only be one if the people are on your side, and Mao wanted to govern China by that same principle. Like the Soviet Union, the CCP enacted a series of five-year plans aimed at socializing the country, not just in a political or economic sense, but socially as well. Mao wanted a country of socialists who had been politically and socially indoctrinated into Maoism specifically. In keeping with the agrarian spirit of the CCP under Mao, the first set of plans revolved around land reform. So unlike the Soviet Union, the CCP didn't have security forces going around seizing land in the name of the state and then redistributing it. Instead, to instill a radical spirit in the peasantry, Mao and the CCP classified the levels of peasants, promised moderate protection to middle and lower classes of peasants, and then allowed the peasants themselves to kill landlords and redistribute the land. Mao felt the seizure needed to be violent to eliminate the landlord class. By 1953, landlords had been virtually eliminated from the Chinese mainland, and land was then converted into agricultural collectives where it was owned and protected by the Chinese state. But production was decided in common by the peasants rather than at a higher level in the CCP. Another thing that Mao and the CCP did differently than the Soviet Union was establishing autonomous regions instead of republics. This decision and China's claims to their lost territories that were taken during the century of humiliation have been a source of controversy and tension with the with the West and with Russia for decades. 
So early in the PRC, there were six greater administrative areas established that governed provinces and municipalities. These were abandoned in 1954 because they were too large to uniformly administer and Mao was a big stickler for uniformity. The size of these administrative areas also increased the potential for government corruption and the PRC, uh, rather Mao was a stickler for anti-corruption as well. Currently, the PRC has 23 provinces, five autonomous regions, and two special administrative regions. Both the PRC and the ROC, which is the Republic of China and Taiwan, claim both Taiwan and Fujian. The structural breakdown in China goes as follows. You have provincial levels, prefectural, county level, township level, and village level. At every level, there's elected officials and councils with a range of responsibility, like, for example, at the village level, you'll have a party delegate who takes the concerns of the village to the township and also receives guidance from the township officials. At every level, there's party rules and then independently established rules, laws, and customs. So Mao and the CCP set up this labyrinthine work network of matrix responsibilities because he wanted to be respectful of the cultures of ethnic minorities in China in an attempt to avoid accusations of cultural washing like Stalin had in the Soviet republics with Russification. So Stalin started out trying to also be respectful by establishing these autonomous republics, which were generally established under like ethnic and religious lines. However, I mean, rarely do you encounter any substantially sized piece of land where only one group of people live and work and consider to be theirs. So you have situations like Azerbaijan and Armenia, for for example, and the current disputes that they're having over the, um, I hope I'm saying this, the Nagorno region, right? So these two, uh, these two republics are established. Armenia was already a republic. Azerbaijan was established for the Muslim population, essentially the Turkic Muslim population in that area. And now they're continually beefing over this particular region where both Armenian Christians and Azerbaijani Muslims have lived for hundreds of years because Stalin kind of, when he created these republics, he said, okay, everybody can do their own thing as long as it's sort of Russian in identity. So the CCP wanted to avoid that. Um, So on March 16th, 1953, Mao Zedong wrote a directive to the Central Committee of the CCP, cautioning against what he called hen chauvinism. In the directive, he states, in some places, the relations between nationalities are far from normal. For communists, this is an intolerable situation. We must go to the root and criticize the hen chauvinist ideas, which exist to a serious degree among many party members and cadres. Namely, the reactionary ideas of the landlord class and the bourgeoisie, or the ideas characteristic of the the Kuomintang, which are manifested in the relations between nationalities. Mistakes in this respect must be corrected at once. 
Delegations led by comrades who are familiar with our nationality policy and full of sympathy for our our minority nationality compatriots still suffering from discrimination should be sent to visit the areas where there are minority nationalities, make a serious effort at investigation and study, and help party and government organizations in the localities discover and solve problems. The visit should not be those of looking at flowers on horseback. Judging from the mass of information on hand, the Central Committee holds that wherever there are minority nationalities, the general rule is that there are problems calling for a solution, and in some cases, very serious ones. On the surface, all is quiet, but actually there are some very serious problems. What has come to light in various places in the last two or three years shows that hen chauvinism exists almost everywhere. It will be very dangerous if we fail now to give timely education and resolutely overcome hen chauvinism in the party and amongst the people. The problem in the relations between nationalities, which reveals itself in the party and among the people in many places, is the existence of hen chauvinism to a serious degree and not just a matter of its vestiges. In other words, bourgeois ideas dominate the minds of those comrades and people who have had no Marxist education and have not grasped the nationality policy of the Central Committee. Therefore, education must be assiduously carried out so that this problem can be solved step by step. Moreover, the newspaper should publish more articles based on specific facts to criticize hen chauvinism openly and educate the party members and the people. So as you can see, the equality of all ethnic minorities under a Marxist state was of supreme importance to Mao Zedong, and he stressed that all the engines of society should be focused on promoting tolerance and unity with respect to all ethnicities within the PRC. Political education was the primary focus of the CCP because only through this education would Chinese people learn to live and work together communally. Mao Zedong wanted to instill a nationalism that was not based in hen supremacy, unlike his counterpart, Chiang Kai-shek, who, upon taking power in Taiwan, systematically erased the indigenous aborigines of Taiwan from the national consciousness. I bet you didn't even know that the indigenous people of Taiwan weren't Han Chinese, but rather Austronesian, did you? Because I didn't know until I started researching this episode. The Kuomintang prescribed the use of indigenous names, seized land, and forced the indigenous people of Taiwan to learn Mandarin, resulting in the extinction of several languages, such as the language of the Puyuma and Kavalan peoples. The KMT's policies regarding the indigenous Taiwanese were similar to and just as devastating as the Japanese policies when they occupied the island. Ain't that something? For all the cultural genocide accusations that are flung around, historically, only the bourgeois nationalists have actually committed it, while the PRC has preserved dozens of Chinese languages. Chapter 2. Sino-Soviet Relations and the Sino-Soviet Split Imperial Russia and Imperial China had a rocky diplomatic relationship, one that did improve slightly after both monarchies fell and the two countries became the USSR and the First Republic of China. Although they had a common enemy in the Japanese for over two decades, there were still incidents between the USSR and the KMT and the USSR and the CCP. In 1921, the USSR began supporting the Kuomintang and Moscow-centered Comintern ordered the Chinese Communist Party to ally with the KMT, which eventually led to the Shanghai Massacre in April 1927. In 1929, the KMT seized the Manchurian Chinese Eastern Railway, 
and the USSR responded swiftly with a military intervention that restored joint Russian-Chinese control over the railway. In 1934, the 34th Division of the Chinese Republican Army, that is the KMT, soundly defeated the white and red Russians when they briefly allied to invade Xinjiang province. This unit was entirely composed of Chinese Muslims. Later during the Chinese Civil War, while the KMT was busy fighting the CCP in the eastern part of China, the USSR funded and armed Uyghur separatists in Xinjiang and helped them rebel against the KMT in the Ili Rebellion. The Uyghurs and Russians ousted the KMT from Xinjiang and established the Second East Turkestan Republic, a short-lived Russian satellite state that, get this, the US and UK were staunchly opposed to. Truman and Churchill supported the KMT and did not want ethnic minorities getting ideas about sovereignty. Also, they thought the KMT would prevail in the Chinese Civil War, and so having a Soviet-backed state on the borders of what they thought was going to be a capitalist China was not ideal for them. Ultimately, though, the KMT lost, and the USSR removed their support for the Second East Turkestan Republic when Uyghur and Kazakh Chinese leaders accepted Mao's invitation to the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference in 1949. Also, while China was considered an unofficial allied power in World War II, the USSR did not declare war on Japan until August 1945, and that was because they saw the writing on the wall and wanted a slice of whatever holdings that Imperial Japan had once Japan inevitably surrendered and the great carving up of nations began again in earnest. I would say that the USSR's attitudes towards weaker socialist nations like China wasn't very cash money of them, but seeing as how cash money records handles their affairs, it actually was very cash money of them. Nonetheless, the CCP accepted aid from the Comintern and later under the table from the USSR and sent Chinese communists to study in Moscow before, during, and after the Chinese Civil War. These Moscow-trained apparatchiks were known as the 28 Bolsheviks. And last episode, I talked about how the 28 Bolsheviks and their allies in the CCP tried to demote or oust Mao from the CCP because he wouldn't disband the Red Army. Well, after the war, those 28 Bolsheviks and their allies were still around, and they urged Mao to lean heavily on Stalin for guidance and aid. Mao's memory was, however, very long, and he had formulated his own spin on Marxist-Leninism to suit the Chinese situation. Furthermore, he thought Stalin was kind of a bully and a bit of a revisionist who only knew how to deal with his political adversaries by killing them rather than winning over the people with political education and providing for their needs. Mao's idea of a purge was, okay, you no longer have any sort of political or economic influence, go work in a factory. Stalin's version of a purge was, bang, bang, you're dead. Uh, So now this isn't to say that Mao was a pacifist, not in any way, shape or form, but he was smarter than Mao, uh, than Stalin and a lot more charismatic. And he never outright threatened anyone where he could cajole them instead. And he rarely like ordered anybody's death himself. He tended to like make vague pronouncements and be like, if you support me, you'll do whatever you feel like needs to be done. And then like rabid Maoists would be like, whatever needs to be done, say less. And then they would start killing people and Mao would be like, oh, damn. All right, then. So both of these men cultivated 
cult of personality, but Mao Zedong's cult of personality was used to fuse the Chinese state and the people together after he died, whereas Stalin's cult of personality was immediately repudiated after his death. Two big components make up Marxist-Leninism, a commitment to mutual aid, solidarity, and possibly armed struggle against the bourgeoisie with other socialists around the world, and the belief that a vanguard of the proletariat was needed to secure the socialist state for the masses, and then later turn over responsibility to the Soviets for collective self-governing. The vanguard's chief responsibility is securing the socialist state and all the means of production from the bourgeois, identifying and nullifying the reactionaries who would be compelled to sabotage the new socialist state and otherwise creating the conditions for a peaceful, later decentralization of power. Vladimir Lenin formed the Third International, also known as the Comintern, in 1919 to advocate for worldwide communist revolution, so the first part. The mission of the Comintern was to struggle by all available means, including armed force, for the overthrow of the international bourgeoisie and the creation of an international Soviet Republic as a transition stage to the complete abolition of the state. Joseph Stalin, who was head of the USSR in 1943, dissolved the Comintern that year as a goodwill gesture to his allies in World War II, the US and UK, who were, interestingly enough, more afraid of communism than they were the fascism that they were actively fighting all over the globe. In 1947, Stalin organized the Common Form, which had a decidedly more Eastern European focus than the Common Turn. In the winter of 1950, Stalin invited Mao to Moscow to congratulate him on the formation of the PRC and discuss future collaboration. Once Mao was in Russia, Stalin put off their meeting by several weeks as a way of conveying the Soviet Union's primacy over other socialist states. Mao had proposed a Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship that addressed Russian military presence in the ports of Dalian and Lushan, which is also known as Port Arthur, and Russian control over the Far East Railway and the South Manchuria Railway. Stalin was initially opposed to the treaty, but he later agreed to it, although the ports weren't returned until after Stalin died. Another sticking point was that Stalin was very choosy about when he wanted to lend support to an armed communist struggle. When it was a country in the periphery of the Soviet bloc like Greece, he chose to abstain, fearing U.S. intervention. But in the case of North Korea, he happily assisted Kim Il-sung in launching the Korean War. Apparently, Stalin and Kim didn't believe that the U.S. would intervene in Korea, but as we all know, they woefully miscalculated that one. Mao Zedong and Zhao Enlai, who had planned and scrapped an invasion of Taiwan because of heavy U.S. military presence there, had to convince members of the Politburo and their generals to prepare to defend China from U.S. invasion at the Chinese-Korean border on the Yailu River. When Zhao Enlai and a Chinese delegation met with Stalin at his vacation home on the Black Sea in October 1950, Stalin agreed to provide Soviet close air support, which the Chinese didn't need because they would just be defending their side of the Yalu River and thus would not welcome a Soviet air attack on their own soil. And he also agreed to military equipment on a credit basis and only after March of 1951. Ultimately, Mao and the Chinese didn't find Soviet support very useful, to them, which was irritating since it was the Soviets who convinced the North Koreans to launch the war in the first place. So like, 
Mao, uh, not sorry, Mao, Stalin and Kim Il-sung just like got it in their heads that they were going to rid the Korean peninsula of all the bourgeoisie, which is great. But considering you have the US and to a lesser extent, the UK and pretty much the whole UN backing them. And they're on this whole like containment policy thing. We have to stop the next specter of violence, which is communism. And you don't even consult with your huge neighbor, socialist neighbor, China, like, hey, we're about to start a war in the Korean Peninsula and the U.S. might get involved and they might, I don't know, fucking invade you or whatever, since you're also a communist state. That's so rude, right? But yeah, on October 25th, 1950, 125,000 Chinese People's Volunteer Army troops launched the first phase offensive near the Chinese border. This is a bit of his, this is a bit of historical revisionism that isn't discussed often enough for me. So allow me to don my cape for a second. The UN side loves to whine and complain about how the Chinese attacked them first. But the reason why was because the UN forces were advancing towards the border. Like you can't get, really get mad at the Chinese for attacking you first when you are steadily marching towards the Chinese border. If y'all just stayed in Korea, okay, whatever, do you think? But you were advancing towards the Yalu River. You always forget to mention that part. So it's like you bring several divisions worth of military units to my back door. And I wouldn't be waiting to see what you do either. So after the first phase offensive, the Soviets decided to actually help. My best guess as to why, it's because they felt that the hostilities were going to eventually result in the exchanging of territory. And they didn't want to miss out on the chance to acquire another warm water port. Just like they did by declaring war on Japan at the very last minute. They didn't really want to help, but they also didn't want to miss out on the exchanging of goods. Warm water ports are like the one ring for any Russian government, be it imperial, Soviet, or like their current liberal democratic government. They're obsessed with having them. And I get it. The PBA followed up their victory in the first phase offensive with a three-pronged assault on the 8th, ah, sorry, UN 8th Cav Regiment that pushed them back to the, sorry you guys, I don't speak Korean, Cheongchong River. And then followed that up by delivering a crushing defeat to the UN forces at the Battle of Cheongchong River, after which the UN forces retreated out of North Korea behind the 38th parallel and the rest is history from there. So basically, um, the UN forces got a little too big for their britches. They thought it was going to be like, I don't know what the fuck they thought it was going to be, like Omaha Beach or some shit. And China was like, I think the fuck not. After the Korean War, the Soviets began to take the Chinese more seriously as allies, and thousands of Soviet engineers, doctors, and other professionals went to China on knowledge exchange missions. The Soviets were instrumental in building a network of industrial facilities across China capable of building automobiles, heavy machinery, and war material. There were even plans to provide China with nuclear capabilities. However, Mao disliked and distrusted Nikita Khrushchev even more than he had Stalin, and he denounced Khrushchev publicly when he heard about Khrushchev's secret meeting to renounce Stalinism. Mao thought Khrushchev was a coward and disloyal and a revisionist and made his misgivings public, which then emboldened Khrushchev opponents in Moscow. 
In response, Khrushchev mocked Mao's failures with a great leap forward. If you recall from my Russian socialism episode, Khrushchev was a big agriculture guy, and he deeply resented not being consulted on Mao's five-year agricultural plans. The final split was marked by a seven-month undeclared conflict in Manchuria called the Sino-Soviet Border Conflict of 1969. Moscow even briefly considered dropping a nuclear weapon but decided not to and instead funded Uyghur militias in Xinjiang to cause social unrest on China's borders. This led to Mao expelling all Soviet dignitaries and scientists from China and declaring the USR to be a social imperialist state, that is, Socialist in name, but imperialist indeed, and Mao making diplomatic overtures to the Soviet Union's biggest rival, the United States of America, culminating in U.S. President Richard Nixon's sensationalized visit to Beijing in 1972 and the beginnings of U.S.-China detente. Chapter 3, The Great Leap Forward and the Anti-Rightist Campaign. In terms of developing a domestic economy, agriculture and tourism are the two sectors that require the least amount of capital to start up and can employ the greatest numbers of people. So it's no wonder then that so much of the developing world devotes the greatest percentage of their industrial land use to these two ventures. Mao was a man of the peasantry and an agrarian socialist who believed that unequal land distribution was the root cause of inequality. The culling of landlords was the goal of his first five-year plan, and collectivism was the goal of his second. Mao referred to this as the Great Leap Forward, an effort, in an effort to appease middle peasants who farmed small pockets of land and used traditional practices. Mao and the CCP devised a staggered plan where first, mutual aid teams of five to 15 households would share tools and draft animals on land seized by the state. Then elementary agricultural collectives of 20 to 40 households, then higher cooperatives of 100 to 300 households. The CCP did a lot of marketing to encourage families to join these cooperatives, sometimes sending party members' families to live on the cooperatives as a way of showing that the CCP was willing to do whatever they wanted the people to do. The idea was that not only would this instill a communist spirit in the people by living and working together so closely, but that agricultural output would be increased without land-owning middle peasants feeling like they were being robbed of their land or that their livelihoods were being restricted. So unlike the USSR, the peasants weren't mandated to grow a certain crop or even to produce a certain yield, at least not right away. The problem was that these middle and upper land-owning peasants did not want to host hundreds of strangers on their ancestral land just because some party members promised them that they would have a greater yield. Another issue with the Great Reap Forward was that it coincided with the Anti-Rightist Campaign. The Anti-Rightist Campaign was a political purge of Chinese dissidents that lasted from 1957 to 1959, and it involved removing from influence capitalist sympathizers and people who were against collectivization. Some say that the anti-rightist campaign officially made China a one-party state, but I personally think the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949 established it as such. And besides, the Kuomintang weren't all that committed to making China a multi-party state either, nor was the Republic of China in Taiwan a multi-party state for the first 30 or so years of its existence. The anti-rightist campaign was an overreaction to the responses Mao received from the Hundred Flowers campaign where he asked citizens to give their criticisms of the PRC. So basically, Mao was like, what do you think about me? And people told the truth, and he was like, what the fuck? 
In Mao's words, the policy of letting a hundred flowers bloom and a hundred schools of thought contend is designed to promote the flourishing of the arts and progress of science. The phrasing came from a poem from the warring, a poem from the warring states period of China. And honestly, just kind of adds more credence to my belief that poetry is really the worst thing that ever happened to human civilization. It started a whole purge. So this Warring States period is when various schools of thought competed for ideological supremacy. So from this period came Confucianism, Chinese Mahayana Buddhism, and Taoism. And these were the predominant ideologies of that time period and were still deeply ingrained in Chinese culture and society. Mao's initial idea was to use the intelligentsia to make socialism as deeply ingrained in Chinese culture as Confucianism was. In theory, it's not a terrible idea. Confucius himself was a high-ranking civil servant whose teachings emphasized fealty as a virtue. So using the intelligentsia to promote socialism was actually a pretty good idea. What Mao seemingly did not expect was how reticent everyday people would be to embrace a new ideology or how harsh some of the criticisms of the Hundred Flowers campaign would be. Some historians believe that Mao was attempting to weed out dissenters by luring them into a false sense of safety, while others felt that he was attempting to course correct after years of prioritizing the peasantry over the urbanized intellectuals and creatives. Both are probably right. The Hundred Flowers campaign was encouraged by Mao and the CCP, with students at Peking University creating a democratic wall where passerby would attach their criticisms to the wall for anyone to see. Although some Central Committee members were alarmed by this wave of criticism, Mao initially championed it and urged the people to continue, but events in Eastern Europe made him quickly change his stance. After seeing the student protests in Budapest and Khrushchev publicly denouncing Stalinism, which Mao saw as unnecessary revisionism that made the socialist bloc look weak, Mao was worried that the protests in China, which were very peaceful and pretty orderly at that point, would lead to a full-on insurrection, and so the anti-rightist campaign was born. The anti-rightist campaign hurt the Great Leap Forward in that it made everybody terrified to tell the Central Committee the truth, especially Deng Xiaoping, who Mao had trusted to oversee the anti-rightist campaign. Mao was confident that the communes would produce great surpluses to give to the government, and wherever that didn't happen... Party officials would just take the entire yield and basically lie to the party. This is similar to what happened in the USSR with industrial managers lying about productivity yields in factories. Another issue was that the CCP created a state monopsony. Remember that word from the beginning of the series? Uh, They created a monopsony on grain acquisition at fixed prices in order to stockpile grain for famine relief and to have enough grain to meet the terms of the state's trade deals with the Soviet Union. Together, taxes and compulsory grain acquisitions accounted for about 30% of the total harvest, which left no surpluses from 1955 to 1957. In 1958, private land ownership and traditional harvest rituals were abolished and rationing was introduced in the cities to curb overconsumption. The first phase of collectivization was able to avert famine along the Yangtze River, but moderates such as Zhao Enlai argued that the collectivization should be scaled back so that people's food security wasn't dependent on the government. The overall goal of the Great Leap Forward was to rapidly industrialize China's agricultural and industrial sectors in parallel, 
lever- re- leveraging China's young and cheap labor force to produce agricultural surpluses that would then not only feed the industrial workers, but pay for the infrastructure needed to surpass the UK in steel production in 15 years. What it did was cause a massive famine, a falling out with the Soviet Union, a purge of the intelligentsia, and fury in the countryside. Both Stalin and Mao considered themselves to be the ideological heirs to Vladimir Lenin, and yet, when it came to dealing with small landowners and agriculture, they both ignored the successes of Lenin's new economic plan, and they're both responsible for an infamous famine as a result. If you'll recall from my Russian socialism episodes, the NEP did away with the practice of forced acquisition of agricultural products called Prodazvyorska and instead instituted a policy of Prodolog, which was a small tax on independent farmer that independent farmers paid on their agricultural products. So you allow small farmers to continue doing what they've been doing in the countryside for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and make them pay a tax on their earnings. You, as the state, also guarantee yourself as a buyer, but you don't set quotas because you don't have the ability to accurately decree agricultural yields. By having a guaranteed buyer in the government, farmers feel more comfortable diversifying their production and expanding but they don't feel compelled to charge as much for their goods. Then you use that tax to build the industrial and technical infrastructure that employs the urban proletariat who then buy food from the farmers. It's very simple. Lenin laid it out perfectly. This is how Lenin avoided famine in 1922 in Russia and deterred the white Russians who were trying to sway the kulaks to join their side. So for these two giants of men to have been so close to Lenin, read everything he wrote, knew him inside and out, backwards and forth. I don't understand why they couldn't have just fucking did that. Chapter four, the cultural revolution. The aftermath of the Great Leap Forward and the anti-rightist campaign, uh, the purchase created a deep rift between the CCP and the peasants and Henan, Shandong, Qinghai, Gansu, Sichuan, Fujian, and Yunnan provinces, and in the Tibet Autonomous Region, protests erupted, some like the Spirit Soldier Revolt in Henan, lasting the entire year of 1959. By attempting to leverage the labor of the rural presence to build the industrial economy in the cities, Mao and the CCP had damaged one of their most important relationships, and some did not see a way to heal that rift with Mao as the head of state. After finally being told the truth about the effects the Great Leap Forward was having in the country, Mao resigned as chairman of the PRC, but remained as chairman of the CCP. Um, personally, I think it's pretty silly for there to be two chairmanships like that in one party state, but as an act of symbolism, it did it somewhat did the job of making the CCP seem contrite. As for the men who actually carried out the Great Leap Forward in the anti-rightist campaign, uh, Ding Xiaoping remained CCP secretary and Lu Shaoqi took over as PRC chairman. At the Lushan conference, Ping Dehuai, a military commander, sharply criticized the Great Leap Forward for its adverse effects on the modernization of the army and for that he was replaced by Lin Bao, who was a Mao loyalist. 
The Lushan Conference was a watershed moment in Chinese socialist history because you begin to see a clear delineation between Maoists and more mainstream socialists like Deng Xiaoping and Ping Dehuai. Hyperbolic Western historians will say that the Lushan Conference uh, were anti-communist or anti-socialist, but the men who were actually at that conference definitely identified themselves as socialists. They just didn't associate it with loyalty to Mao Zedong and his vision anymore. Mao was far from finished, though, after Lushan, but the party did have several more conferences following Lushan with plenty of self-criticism and discussion on how to reorient from being a Maoist cult of personality state to a more mainstream socialist state. All I can say to that is damn, because at least Khrushchev waited until Stalin was dead to denounce Stalinism and did so in a series of secret meetings. Ding Ping and the rest of the second generation socialists were talking shit about Mao and Maoism like right in Mao's face. And he was still the leader of the party. But then again, Mao was a bit more open to criticism than Stalin, whose ego and paranoia would have definitely not allowed the kind of open criticisms that Mao allowed in his party meetings. Second gen reformers aside, Mao Zedong kept trucking along as party chairman and in 1963 launched the socialist education movement, which boiled down to a purge by any other name. In case anyone wants to contest that accusation, the socialist education movement is also commonly known as the four cleanups movement, as it aimed to clean up politics, economy, organization, and ideology. So basically a purge. The four cleanups movement was the precursor to the Cultural Revolution in that Mao wasn't seeing the re-education successes in the four cleanups movement that he wanted, and he decided to expand it. What intellectuals and artists remained in China at that time were sent to live with peasants as a way to teach them how to appreciate the life of the peasant and all that the peasants brought to China. It was also a way for them to learn new skills and to accept Maoism as the form of socialism that was best for China. Now, Mao was not alone in this kind of thinking in the 1960s. In Israel, the kibbutz was designed to pretty much do the same thing. Help Jews who had recently moved to Israel become acclimated to the Israeli way of life and reconnect with their Judaism. And the kibbutz system was also similar to the plantation system in English-controlled Ireland, where the goal was to plant as many English Protestants onto Irish Catholic land as possible to change the demographics to one that was pro-English. But I'm not about to go there today or any day. I'm going to leave that whole train of thought alone. I just wanted to put that little bug in your head back to China. The Cultural Revolution is pretty difficult to unravel because it manifested in several stages. The first stage began in the cities and it was violent and mostly led by young people. The second stage was a reaction to the first and it involved sending all those angry young people to the countryside to work off all that rage. The third stage began when Mao Zedong died in 1976 and Lin Bao and the Gang of Four took over. And the last phase began when Deng Xiaoping finessed his way into the premiership and began the reforms and opening up program. Phase one kicked off in August 1966 with a series of purges in Beijing, rounding up anyone the Red Guard deemed counter-revolutionary or reactionary. The Red Guard were a militant Maoist group that were active on many school and university campuses in Beijing, Nanjing, Guangzhou, and Jiamen, to name a few. The leader of the Red Guard in Beijing was Song Bingbin, a student at Experimental High School, which was attached to the Beijing Normal University. Once again, Mao Zedong 
delegated responsibility for the dirty work to his loyalists. Mao Zedong and the CCP rarely sanction anyone's debts. Instead, they prefer to let organized groups like the Red Guard interpret the meaning of such terms as bombard all headquarters and too rebellish justified. He would just say like vague shit and people would be like, again, say less. What I found interesting about this brand of sloganeering was that the CCP and Mao Zedong were the headquarters by this point. Mao Zedong was the chairman of the CCP and after stepping down as chairman of the PRC following the failure of the Great Leap Forward, he was still the most powerful man in the country. But I guess, yeah, I don't know. I guess he like still felt like his hold wasn't secure enough. I don't know. Unlike Stalinism. Maoism was not repudiated after the Great Leap Forward. And with China being a one-party state, Mao was still the most powerful individual in the country. So how was he speaking from the dice of power, asking people to rebel against power? This fact, to me, signals that the Cultural Revolution was Mao attempting to maintain the reins of power from second-generation Chinese communists like Deng Xiaoping. In May 1966, Mao Zedong in his little red book of quotations classified the five black categories of people that were a threat to China. Landlords, rich peasants, counter-revolutionaries, bad influence, and rightists. See how vague that is? I mean, landlords and rich peasants is pretty straightforward, but even rich peasants, you classified five or six different types of peasants. So like, which ones are now the rich ones? Counter-revolutionaries, bad influences. Well, what the hell does that mean? That could be to anybody. Uh, the thing is, by 1966, there were no landlords in mainland China anymore. And the Great Famine had essentially wiped out the rich peasants as well. The other three categories are, like I said, pretty vague by design so that intellectuals, teachers, and Mao's political rivals could be cowed into submission to Maoism. And by and large, it did work. Song Bing Ben, who was a bad bitch, scary bitch. Oh, Lord. She allegedly began Red August and the first phase of the Cultural Revolution when she and her comrades beat their deputy principal, Bian Zhanggun, to death. Bian was the first teacher killed, and after the Red Guard in Beijing reported her death to the CCP and none of them were arrested or reprimanded, that was the signal to start the whole purge. During the massacres by the Red Guard, uh, they coined the term the four olds, meaning four symbols of pre-communist China. Old ideas like Confucianism and filial piety, old culture like seasonal festivals and traditional naming conventions, old customs like the kowtow, which was a Cantonese imperial custom, and old habits. The term was picked up by Mao loyalist newspapers and people like Lin Bao in the CCP 8th Central Committee. The idea was that the four olds and traditional Chinese culture were to blame for China's lack of socialist progression and that new ideas, culture, customs, and habits needed to be adopted. This was a throwback to the May 4th movement that led to the Xinhai Revolution, and Mao hoped that it would yield a similar result. All, res- all symbols of pre-communist China were desecrated and destroyed, including the Cemetery of Confucius. Long-dead emperors' bodies were exhumed, denounced, and burned, Streets were renamed in Mao's honor, and many people changed their names to things like Zhihong, which means determined red. Anyone suspected of maintaining an altar to anyone but the eight immortals of communist China 
not to be confused with the original eight immortals legendary Xion of Taoist mythology, were purged or forced to offer public self-criticism and sent to hard labor cramps and sometimes killed. Ming vases were smashed, kin poetry was burned, and song tapestries were destroyed. Some artifacts the CCP moved to protect like the Terracotta Army and the Lishan Giant Buddha. Interestingly enough, some Western influences managed to permeate Red China during this time, like things like ballet and Western instruments in the Peking Opera. It seems a little counterproductive to introduce Western dance during a Chinese cultural revolution, but I guess they felt like new is new. One thing that actually became more popular during the Cultural Revolution was traditional Chinese medicine. Somehow, during a purge of all things traditionally Chinese, Mao found a way to praise and promote traditional Chinese medicine, probably because it was cheaper than the government spending money on medical research and development to replace it. In October 1966, Mao organized a central work conference to purge within the Central Committee. As a result of this conference, Lu Xiaoqi Xiao and Ding Xiaoping were purged, and Lu was first placed under house arrest in Beijing, then sent to a hard labor camp where he soon died. Ding Xiaoping was sent to three different re-education camps and eventually ended up working in an engine factory in Jiangxi. It's kind of an ironic result for the man who zealously carried out the anti-rightist campaign. By December 1966, the country was split into two t- factions, Mao loyalists and moderates. I want to reiterate that none of these people are actually pro-capitalism and nearly all of the ranking Politburo members stressed their commitment to socialism in their public self-criticisms. Mao had actually done a pretty good job of educating the population about socialism. He just wanted it to revolve around him and his ideology. Mao then called... By December 1966, the country was split into two factions, Mao loyalists and moderates. I want to reiterate that none of these people are actually pro-capitalism and nearly all of the ranking Politburo members stressed their commitment to socialism in their public self-criticisms. Mao had actually done a pretty good job of educating the population about socialism. He just wanted it to revolve around him and his ideology. Mao then called for an all-around civil war and urged the PVA to stand with the left faction. As most of the military commanders and units had close relationships with the establishment faction, they did not join the left faction and instead followed behind men like Zhao Enlai to suppress the left faction. So Mao turned to the people instead and they organized Duoquan, which means power seizure groups, to fight the establishment. In Shanghai, Wang Hongwen, a factory worker, organized a far-reaching workers' duquan that displaced the Red Guard and the municipal government in that city and created the Shanghai People's Commune. In the military, the power seizure, seizure movement gained strength as well, and after Vice Pre- Premier Tan Jinlin voiced uh, his misgivings, Mao, who had until this point been ambivalent about giving support to the power seizures, gave a speech stating his support and the February countercurrent was sanctioned, which suppressed opposition within the party for many years. Opportunists always rear their heads in times like these. And because there was no central leadership aside from Mao, who was not always aware of the power seizures happening in his name. So in cities like Wuhan, splits began to, began to form in the Duquan and these power struggles got extremely violent. Army General Chen Zaidao, 
successfully pushed back these Duquan who were backed by Mao. But Mao still wanted the military support, so he flew to Wuhan to try and secure Qin support. On July 20th, 1967, in what became known as the Wuhan Incident, members of the Million Heroes, a faction of state and local employees and skilled workers who had PLA backing, captured, they kidnapped Mao's aide Wang Li, which led to General Chen Zedao being arrested and tried in Beijing, which broke the resistance within the PLA in the South. Zhang Chengqiao later stated that PLA support was the determining factor over whether rebel groups or establishment groups won in any city. In May 1968, Mao announced the next phase of the Cultural Revolution would be the cleansing of the ranks and later the Down to the Countryside movement. The first was just standard purge, and after the cleansing of the ranks, the military, which by now was in Mao and his loyalist control, disbanded the Red Guard in cities. Mao solved the problem of what to do with all these young and angry revolutionaries in the cities by sending them to the further reaches of China in the down to the countryside movement. The goal was for the educated urbanites to learn from the peasants and for the peasants to develop a revolutionary class consciousness from the urbanites. The Chinese practice of laogai, which is still in effect and is highly controversial, was implemented and means reform through labor. Laogai is for people who have expressed counter-revolutionary ideas to be recommitted to Chinese socialist causes, whereas Lao Zhao is for those who commit petty crimes to pay restitution to the state through labor. Lao Zhao was officially abolished in December 2013, with some 300,000 prisoners released. Lao Gai is still on the books in Chinese law, with the law stipulating that any prisoner able to work shall accept education and reform through labor. The major difference between the two is that with Lao Gai, you're still part of the greater population, whereas with Lao Zhao, you are housed in a detention center. It's essentially like being in a halfway house, but for political malfeasance and not crime. In any case, Lao Gai sent hundreds of thousands of young educated Chinese professionals to the hinterlands, and while some, like future Chinese premier and presidents Deng Xiaoping and Jin Jinping, Xi Jinping found the experience rewarding, Others were not able to cope and died from various ailments, mostly exposure, malnutrition, and overwork. Like I said earlier, the results of the downs of the countryside movement were mixed. On one hand, you had the government forcing tens of thousands of urban youths into the countryside in order to rid themselves of a problem they created. But on the other hand, the Chinese countryside, which had suffered the most from the policies of the Great Leap Forward, were getting doctors, engineers, nurses, and teachers that they hadn't had access to previously, as well as extra hands to work on the farm. Xi Jinping was forcibly sent to the countryside and his father imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution, but he said he learned a lot from the peasants. And Mao's ultimate goal of greater Chinese cultural identity expressed through socialism was largely achieved. During the Down to the Countryside movement, a new cult of personality began to form around Mao Zedong. Previously, he was revered along the generals and intellectuals he fought beside in the Chinese Civil War, but after purging most of those old comrades, the new cult of personality began to be centered around Mao only. A great deal of editorializing was done to burnish his image in the minds of the Chinese, leading to such hysteria as mango fever, which was legit just the passing around of some mangoes that Mao had been gifted by the Pakistanis. I really wanted to think that there was more to that, but no, it was the whole hagiography was concocted about mangoes because Mao gave some to some peasants on the tour. It's weird, but I guess harmless. 
Anyway, in 1969, August 1969, the CCP held its pivotal Ninth Party Congress, and it was the first where Revolutionary Committee selected the delegates instead of them being selected by party members. This was a big break with the past and also saw more PLA members selected to the Congress. The PLA was behind Marshal Lin Bao, and this created a faction between military and civilian leadership in the Congress. During the Congress, Lin Bao was written into the Constitution as Mao's chosen successor, and thus began the Lin Bao Gang of Four phase of the Cultural Revolution. After the Ninth Party Congress, Mao made a great show of declaring the victory of the Cultural Revolution and restored some party functionaries once he was convinced of their fealty. In the more far-flung provinces like Xinjiang and Tibet, revolutionary factions continued their bloody struggles against one another for regional power. There was also friction much closer to home with Zhang Qing, known as Madame Mao, bumping heads with Lin Bao and his faction. Zhang Qing was instrumental in creating the propaganda for the Cultural Revolution and Mao's cult of personality, but as Mao's fourth wife, most of her authority was derived through him. Lin Bao, in contrast, had the support of the PLA, and Zhang Qing feared he would use that to usurp Mao eventually. Zhang Qing and the authors, theorists, and political scientists Zhang Chongqiao, Yao Wenyan, and Wang Hongwen were dubbed the Gang of Four by Mao Zedong himself and had great influences over the speeches that Mao made, the Little Red Book, and many of the policies of the Cultural Revolution. They had many newspapers and radio stations under their sway, which they used to bolster Mao's influence. They staged revolutionary plays and met with Red Guards around the city to distribute little red books throughout the countryside. After the Sino-Soviet split, Lin Bao sidestepped Mao Zedong in order to publicly declare that China and the PLA were preparing for war against the USSR, which Mao found troubling. In order to send the message that Mao Zedong was still the big boss in domestic and foreign affairs, it was the Gang of Four and Mao's old friend Zhao Enlai, who uh, Lin Bao had taken most of his like chairmanships within the military. They suggested that the American, the American detente, and Mao even mentioned to President Nixon that Lin was against their meeting with one another. Mao also and Lao Xiao in Lai, who had only reluctantly joined Lin Bao's faction, to bring back to power some of the military and civilian party members who had been purged, including Deng Xiaoping. The Gang of Four Lin Bao phase lasted from 1969 to 1976, when a series of deaths brought the Cultural Revolution to an end. The first was Lin Bao's death in a plane crash on September 13, 1971. He and Mao had a falling out over some comments Lin made about Mao's wife at the Lushan conference, and when called upon it to when called upon to make a self-criticism, Lin refused and Mao began to question his loyalty. By July 1971, Mao had decided to remove Lin and his supporters. The official narrative is that Zhao Enlai tried to mediate, but seeing as how Lin had usurped his position, I don't think he was very genuine in that. Either way, Lin and several of his supporters died in a plane crash in Mongolia en route to the USSR where they were fleeing after attempting to assassinate Mao Zedong. The next death was Zhao Enlai's from cancer in January 1976, and Mao took it pretty hard. Zhao had been his right-hand man since the Chinese Civil War, and he had named him successor after Lin Bao's betrayal and death, making Zhao his third-name successor. 
The nation was in deep mourning and the gang of four didn't read the room very well and kept up press attacks on the now dead Zhao and his protege, Din Xiaoping. Even Mao, who had publicly eulogized Zhao, was irritated by the power struggle that was going on. And how could you blame him? He wasn't even dead yet. And there was infighting over the China that he would eventually leave behind. The Gang of Four was either oblivious to this or defiant because they continued to utilize their monopoly within the press and associations with revolutionary committees to gain support for their faction. Ding took Zhao's place as acting premier and the majority of the military were cautious not to take a side in the power struggle. The Gang of Four won the first round when they successfully had Ding removed as premier during the 1976 Tiananmen incident, where a mass gathering of about Two million people mourned Zhao in Lai during the Qingming Festival, Qingming Festival, sorry, which is a festival of mourning and revering the dead, widely celebrated by Hin Chinese all over the world. During this time, many participants expressed anger at the Gang of Four for their treatment of Zhao in Lai and with Mao and his cultural revolution for how it had diminished Chinese identity and culture. Although the gang had organized the event in Tiananmen, they didn't expect the event to become centralized on Zhao who they had been openly against during his life, nor did they expect open criticism of Mao to occur, so they had to find somebody to blame, and naturally they chose Deng Xiaoping. The CCP labeled the event as counter-revolutionary afterward until the Gang of Four uh, were deposed and imprisoned, and then it was changed to a display of patriotism. On September 9th, 1976... Mao Zedong died at the age of 82, and the Gang of Four maintained control over the government medium, media for a period of six weeks, using the media to establish principles that Mao had supposedly laid down at the end of his life. Vice Premier Hua Guafeng attacked the canonical status of these principles in a Politburo meeting, and Zheng Qing stated that she should be chairman. So Zheng Qing gives me like big Hillary Clinton vibes and that she was behind a lot of Mao's best speeches and policy decisions. She was polarizing both within her party and with the public at large. And she saw her plans for leadership thwarted by younger men like Ding and buffoons like Lin Bao. Zhang and Mao also had one daughter who was ostensibly closer to her father than she was her mother. So Zheng Qing is basically... Hillary Rodham Clinton's Chinese doppelganger or whatever. The gang warned that anyone who stood against them would come to no good end, and they were banking on military support from Wang Dongjing and Cheng Jian, but the PLA chose Hua's faction. On October 6, 1976, Wang informed them that their presence was required at an emergency meeting of the Politburo, and they did not suspect Wang because they thought he was their ally. The three male members were arrested immediately after entering the lobby, lobby and Madame Mao was arrested at her residence. In Shanghai, Guangzhou, and other cities, radical groups associated with the Gang of Four were also told to be present at meetings where they too were arrested, and by the end of the week, most of the Gang of Four's operational partners were in custody without any blood being shed. Chapter 4 the Ascension of Deng Xiaoping as the Architect of Modern China In the immediate aftermath of Mao's death and the downfall of the Gang of Four, Hua Guafeng, Chen Yun, and Li Jianan formed the core of CCP leadership. They, along with Deng Xiaoping and Wang Dongjing, were elected vice chairman at the 1977 Party Congress. 
Initially, Hua was promoted heavily by the party as Mao's chosen successor and tried in numerous ways, and he tried in numerous ways to emulate Mao. His policy was called the two whatevers, meaning whatever Chairman Mao said, we will say, and whatever Chairman Mao did, we will do. Hua continued to rely on Mao's orthodoxy and sort of a and sort of coast on his predecessor's legacy, but this did little to make him a popular or effective leader. Hua didn't have the support of many in the Politburo, and Ding was still in semi-seclusion since Hua decided he still needed further criticism. Ding wanted to implement economic reforms, while Hua wanted to move China towards a more Soviet-style economic planning system. And the majority of the Politburo agreed with Ding, and so after a letter from Ding asking to be reinstated to a vice premiership over several key ministries, and with pressure from the Politburo, Hua officially made Ding Xiaoping a vice premier again in July 1977, and within months, Ding again became the second most powerful figure in China. From there, Ding carefully mobilized his supporters to oust Hua and create the impression that Hua could not govern effectively without him, and succeeded in having him removed from all his top leadership positions by 1980. Ding did allow Hua to maintain his membership in the Central Committee and retire quietly. Ding's first order of business was to repudiate the excesses of the Cultural Revolution and launch a movement called the Boluan Fangjing, which means eliminating chaos and returning to order. And it allowed public criticism and redress for the excesses of the Cultural Revolution. He also reinstated the National College Interest Exams, called the JOKO, and abolished the class background system, which had been used by the Maoist government to exclude people of landlord class backgrounds from civil service, promotion within the military, and gaining licenses to operate private businesses. This was done with the intention of keeping reactionaries from gaining wealth or influence that they would then use to counter the revolution. So I talk a lot about how American presidencies build upon one another, regardless of the political party the president is part of. For example, George W. Bush set a precedent for the treatment of civilians and non-declared combat actions, thereby skirting the Geneva Conventions and allowing for the building of the U.S. drone strike force. His successor, Barack Obama, was from a different political party and ran on a platform of being the anti-George W. Bush. However, once in office, Obama used the Bush doctrine to expand the drone program from two countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, to over eight countries by the time his successor, Donald Trump, took office. Donald Trump, a Republican who loathes Barack Obama, then used the Obama doctrine as justification for not disclosing how many drone strikes the U.S. intelligence apparatus carried out and where. I say all of this to say that by demarginalizing the former landlord class and allowing them more social mobility in Chinese society, as well as membership in the CCP, Ding began a character change in China that went from ultra-left, agrarian, peasant-centric policies under Mao Zedong to a more urban-focused, moderate policy positions under Ding that his eventual successors would build upon until you get to present-day China and Xi Jinping's socialism with Chinese characteristics. Another part of the Boluan Fanjing was the inclusion of the four cardinal principles in the Chinese constitution in 1979. The four cardinal principles stated that there were four areas where debate was allowed. The principle of upholding the socialist path, the principle of upholding the people's democratic dictatorship, 
the principle of upholding the leadership of the CCP, and the principle of Mao Zedong thought and Marxist-Leninism. The four cardinal principles were controversial when included and are still the subject of much debate, which is ironic because they were supposed to end debate on these four topics. Political scientists such as Dr. David Shambaugh noted that the four cardinal principles merely stated that these four principles cannot be questioned, but other political ideas are open for debate and that while the principles themselves are not subject to debate, the interpretations of those principles are. This paved the way for a relaxation of control over ideology. This act paved the way for future premiers to interpret Chinese Marxism in ways that they saw fit. Ding also transformed Chinese foreign policy. Hong Kong had been a colony of the British Empire since 1841 and after the conclusion of the First Opium War and the hundred-year lease on the new territories, which are now part of the Special Administrative Area of Hong Kong, was set to expire in 1997. Ding and the British colonial governor, Murray Mackellows, signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration in 1984, which stipulated that the UK would turn over Hong Kong to China in 1997, which they did, and that Hong Kong would be governed by its existing political frameworks, which are based on English common law, for 50 years thereafter. Ding was an economist, and a large part of why he was elevated to his position as the unofficial most powerful man in China was so he could revitalize the Chinese economy. The Great Leap Forward and the Sino-Soviet split had made China a rogue state with very few trading partners by 1979, and Ding and the mainstream communists within the CCP wanted to scale back ultra-left policies in an effort to jumpstart the economy. Ding came up with the four modernizations, which were policies aimed at strengthening agriculture, industry, defense, and science and technology in China. Ding understood the importance of having a strong domestic economy, and he had the privilege of watching China's socialist rivals, the Russians, outpace their global rivals, the U.S., in productivity, but still fail to keep up in terms of defense spending or overall GDP. This was because the Russians were heavily focused on meeting quotas and heavy industry over consumer goods. Stagflation hit all three countries differently, and all three countries responded in different ways. For the Americans, it was breaking up unions, ramping up defense spending, stock market speculation, and the expansion of credit to purchase consumer goods. Also, basically turning war into an enterprise. For the Russians, they took the bait on the defense spending wars, at the expense of all the other economic sectors, and while subsidizing half of Eastern Europe. And instead of loosening the reins and tightening the pocketbook, the Russians started funding proxies all over the globe in a belated counter-containment strategy. The Chinese did neither of these. Ding's rationale was to make Chinese labor and finished goods indispensable in the global market. And while he did not live to see this happen, he certainly laid the groundwork for this through the four modernizations. The first thing he did was reject the long-held concept of the iron rice bowl. The iron rice bowl is a Chinese concept similar to the English job for life concept where certain jobs guarantee a certain standard of living, like civil service or military. In China, this was a holdover from the imperial days where Qing and Ming bureaucrats were guaranteed a salary for life as well as appointments for their immediate family members. In a glaring oversight by Maoists, iron rice bowl jobs and appointments were just as prevalent post-cultural revolution. Now, instead of all workers being paid the same, they were paid according to their productivity. 
certain things were still enshrined, like the right to housing, but now everybody, now everyone living in the same accommodations was not guaranteed. And to be fair, it had never really been a reality in Maoist China either. Ding had never really, uh, Ding reached out to the UN Development Program to get funding for modernization efforts and to secure funding for infrastructure projects that would build these four sectors. He was keen to ensure that China did not have to import most of its food and that all the various regions of China with their varying laws and customs could feed themselves in any event. During this time, politicians in areas like Tibet and Xinjiang were paid handsomely to prevent them from looking to India and the USSR, respectively, for better deals. Some anti-Ding dissenters called the CPPCC a buffet of corruption, where delegates were given favors, lucrative overseas appointments, and expensive cognac in exchange for keeping their area and the people within moderately loyal to the PRC. The CPPCC is the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is a yearly meeting of CCP-allied organizations and legally permitted political parties within the autonomous areas and special administrative zones. Another outcome of this reaching out to the UN was that it brought the World Bank and Asian Development Bank to China. But Ding used these banks to strengthen the domestic economy of China, and as such, China was not subject to the neoliberal Washington consensus, something that infuriated Milton Friedman to no end. Thousands of professionals were recruited to come to China and help modernize their agricultural, banking sectors, banking practices, heavy industries, and even their education system. One of the longest lasting outcomes of this movement, which officially lasted from 1979 to 1984, was the hiring of over 100,000 teachers to teach Chinese children, housewives, and middle managers to speak English. Nowadays, these programs are handled by various private but heavily subsidized companies, and China hopes to achieve bilingual literacy rates akin to Sweden and Denmark, where 90% or more of the population speaks English as well as they do Swedish or Danish. Throughout the mid-1980s, Ding continued to chair various committees where he stressed the need for modernization. He outlined three steps for Chinese economic development strategy doubling the 1980 GMP to ensure that the people have enough food and clothing, quadrupling the 1980 GMP by the end of the 20th century, a goal that was achieved by 1995, and increasing the per capita GMP to the level of medium developed countries by 2050. At this time, Ding developed what is known as Ding Xiaoping theory, aka Dingism. Dingism draws on Lenin's NEP and Mao's writings from the Yan'an Soviet and concludes that pre-Soviet Russia had not advanced in capitalism enough to be able to achieve full communism. And Ding explains that the reversal of the NEP in Stalin's era actually hurt the advancement of socialism more than it helped. And that Mao was correct in his assumption that socialism in China needed to have Chinese characteristics. If you'll recall, many months back when I did the episode on African socialism, I mentioned how Julius Nairi took Swahili words that had a colloquial meaning before socialism and gave them socialist meanings as a means of making socialism relatable to what the people were already familiar with. Ding did the same thing with the concept of Qingyu, which means seek truth from facts and is an old expression from the Book of Hen. 92% of Chinese are Hen Chinese. And so Ding used Qingyu because it was explicitly Chinese 
and could be used for socialist purposes. Originally, it described an attitude towards research and study, but it became a slogan under Maoism and was later incorporated into Dingism and presently Xi Jinping thought. Ding used Qingyu to promote socialism with Chinese characteristics, whereby market principles were reintroduced back into the Chinese economy while the CCP maintained political and social control. The official party line is that socialism under Chinese characteristics is guided by scientific socialism, which is a society ruled by reason rather than by sheer will. Another pillar of Deng Xiaoping thought is the united front and one country, two system style of governance. Deng, like most mainland Chinese, wanted a complete reversal of the century of humiliation and the return of all historically Chinese lands that had been lost or leased during that time. This includes Hong Kong, Macau, Fujian, and Taiwan, as well as the Spratly and Paracel Islands in the South China Sea and the Senkaku and Ryukyu Islands in the North China Sea. Under the one country, two systems plan, all lands would be considered China, but would retain their separate political and economic apparatus. This is currently the case in Hong Kong and Macau with both local governments currently being pro-Beijing. And it's what China proposes for reunification with Taiwan as well. The final legacies of Deng Xiaoping's time as premier are the disastrous one-child policy in the 1989 Tiananmen Square incident. The one-child policy was first proposed by Hua Guangfeng as a population as a population boom began to occur after the Great Leap Forward. One of the unintended con- unintended consequences of the down to the countryside movement was that young people were in the country where there is little to do besides work, eat, and procreate, and so that's what they did. By 1982, the Chinese population had hit one billion people. Rather than focus efforts on family planning methods such as birth control, China instead restricted every woman in China to just one child under threat of administrative penalty, and often forced abortions were performed. The emphasis was on keeping down births in urban areas, and to the surprise of no one, boy children were less likely to be given up for adoption than girl children. It was during this time and well into the 1990s that Chinese girl children came to dominate the overseas adoption market. The policy never met its stated goal since about half of Chinese families from 1979 to 2015 had two or more children, and the policy was never applied to Chinese minority groups. One of the main reasons it failed was because a family was allowed to try again if the first child was a daughter, and even a third time. The, in the countryside, families were given unlimited tries to get a son, which fueled the adoption market. The legacy from this policy has been an unequal ratio of Chinese men to women in society today, which has made bride prices skyrocket and led to a very strange dating culture in modern China, where the men have everything they want except a mate, and Chinese women outside of China are highly sought after as spouses on dating sites geared towards Han Chinese. In 1989, the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests are known in China as the July 4th movement. It started when former General Secretary Hu Yaobang died of a heart attack on 15 April 1989. Hu was a dingus who had been perched twice under Mao and was influential in the Bulwan Fajing movement. But his reformist attitude had made enemies among the CCP elders who had him removed from his post as General Secretary in 1987 after blaming him for student protests that had erupted across the country. 
one of whose last requests was that he be buried simply in his hometown, and so the CCP preparations were made in accordance with his wishes. This upset the general public who felt that who deserved a grand state funeral and felt that his legacy needed to be officially reassessed. The Chinese take funerals and remembrances and legacies very seriously. So if a much-loved public figure is not given the expected grand state funeral, it's seen as a slight against the honor of their family and impacts the official documentation of their legacy and how or if they'll be discussed in history books. A similar demonstration had taken place in Tiananmen Square in 1976 when Zhao Enlai was being honored because the Gang of Four were threatening to have his legacy besmirched while the rest of the country was in deep mourning. The protests for Hu reached about 100,000 people um, within days of his death, and some dissenters used the platforms to talk about government corruption and call for more market reforms in a less centralized form of socialism. One of Ding's most prominent allies, General Secretary Xiao Zinyang distanced himself from the Politburo and allied himself with the protesters. Over a period of seven weeks, the PLA clashed with protesters and tens of thousands of people were killed or injured. Many think Ding gave the order of shoot to kill, but his daughter maintains that it was a collective decision by the Politburo. So there you have it, Ding Xiaoping, the architect of modern China. By officially unofficial stance on Ding Xiaoping was that he was selected by members of the Politburo who were tired of ultra-left Maoism to lead China into a market socialist path because he was close to Mao and could therefore horse trade on Mao's legacy while subtly undermining some of the things that Mao stood for. Kind of like Stalin did with Lenin. However, Ding was an economist and he was selected because they felt he could get the economy on a solid footing, which by and large, he did do. Chapter 5, Zheng Jimin and the Embrace of Chinese Market Socialism. Zheng Jimin was the general secretary of the CCP from 1989 to 2002. As a compromise candidate after Zhao Ziyang was ousted for his support of the Tiananmen Square protesters. He introduced the term socialist market economy into the PRC lexicon and into the policies, continuing what Deng Xiaoping started with his Southern tour, which was a tour of Southern Chinese cities such as Guangzhou, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Zhuhai. This area of Southern China had been slated to be the first to reap the benefits of the reforms and opening up programs that Deng had started with the first special economic zone in mainland China opening up in Shenzhen and a second in Shanghai. These two cities were also supposed to become the site of two stock exchanges. After the Tiananmen Square protest, the reform movement was stopped because the full Politburo felt that it had gone too far. During Ding's two-year tour, Zhang initially paid him no attention, but once his speeches in Shenzhen began to be televised in Hong Kong, and he expressed that he wanted to see Guangdong province catch up to the four Asian tigers, those being Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan, Zhang needed to show that he was as committed to China's development as his predecessor and introduced Chinese market socialism in 1992 at the 14th Party Congress. Zhang Jimin inherited a China that was suffering from corruption at the highest levels of government, uneven economic growth with the largest cities having economies that outpaced entire regions in the interior, a re-emergence of organized crime, and a fluctuating economy. Zhang decided that stability would solve most of the issues and settled on a stable government centralized around him. 
He continued to fund the special economic zones in the coastal cities and used the media to promote himself as the core of leadership, something that hadn't been seen since the late Mao days in the 70s. The plan was to drown out his political rivals and crush opposition first in the minds of Chinese citizens. Zhang was not an economist and largely left economic matters to his minister, Zhu Rongiji. Yeah, okay. Most economists and Chinese economic historians credit Zhu and Zhang's leadership for keeping China afloat during the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s. During Zhang's term, China also joined the World Trade Organization and won their bid for Beijing to host the 2008 Olympic Games. In 2002, Zhang had his three represents written into the Chinese constitution as a continuation of Marxist-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, and Deng Xiaoping theory. His critics derided the move as Zhang's attempt at establishing a cult of personality, but most political scientists both within and outside of China saw it as a standard practice of senior premiers by this point, similar to the doctrines established by American presidents toward the ends of their terms. Zhang's three represents were an advanced productive, were advanced productive forces, which referred to economic production and the responsibility of the party to promote it, progressive course of China's advanced culture, which was an explicit appeal to the party to promote the spread of Chinese culture abroad and the fundamental interests of the majority, which implied that the party must cater to the most mainstream interests in society so long as they advanced socialism with Chinese characteristics. Left-wing critics within the CCP labeled Zhang as a reactionary, while his supporters considered the three represents as a continuation of both Marxist-Leninism and socialism with Chinese characteristics. It is worth noting that several Marxist-Leninist parties in India who had long supported the CCP against Hindu nationalists, Stalinists, and others disavowed the CCP as a Marxist-Leninist party after Zhang's three represents became officially enshrined in Chinese socialist doctrine. This was due to Zhang allowing capitalists, who he called the new social strata, to join the CCP on the grounds that their economic activities contributed to building socialism with Chinese characteristics. Now, why would a capitalist orient their economic activities around? Yeah, okay, whatever. Minding my business. Chapter 6, Hu Jintao and the Emergence of Chinese Soft Power. Zhang Jimin retired gradually, oddly choosing to make his last stand as chairman of the Central Military Commission, well after Hu Jintao had assumed leadership of all his former chairmanships. He retired from this post in 2004, and his successor, Hu Jintao, was now the most powerful man in a cabal of powerful men in the Politburo. He was the, who was the first leader of the CCP, who was a generation younger than the leaders who had fought in the Civil War, and this contributed greatly to his style of governance. Hu Jintao was considered more of a technocrat than an ideologue, and this was evident in his policies of scientific outlook on development. Hu wanted to make China a society that was prosperous and conflict-free, and he sought to achieve this by integrating sets of solutions to various economic, environmental, and social problems through gradual political reforms. Hu saw himself as the final transition from the Communist Party of China being a revolutionary party to it being a ruling party, a process that was begun under Deng Xiaoping. For Hu, a dynamic economy with a robust private sector and a strong CCP with firm control over political and social life was the best way to run China. This kind of reminds me of Sonderweg, where Germany during the First Reich, well, second, during... 
after the consolidation and like during the imperial days, basically. Germany during that time, like, was socially restrictive and all political will and capital had been ceded to the aristocratic class, the Junkers and, you know, the king and his family or whatever. But the capitalists had kind of exchanged political freedom for complete economic freedom. I mean, it's not exactly like that, but yeah, that's what I thought about it. Who did address the growing income and quality of life gaps between urban and rural Chinese, as well as the growing Chinese environmental crises like flooding in central China and the smog problem in many Chinese cities. He did so because he saw both issue, saw both as issues that reactionaries might wield against the state to disrupt social cohesion. In whose words, a harmonious society should feature democracy, the rule of law, justice, sincerity, amity, and vitality. One thing I found interesting was that Hu Jintao considered his China model of governments, which focuses more on social cohesion, cultural enlightenment, and concern for all citizens' welfare to a base degree, as a legitimate alternative to the Western democratic model as a means of engaging with the development, developing world. This reminded me of Simon Bolivar and how he admired the federalist governance style of the United States, but felt that South America's racial and political makeup and background made it better suited to a unitary style of governments that centralized political power and sought to equalize all races and grant Colombia to ensure that all citizens were properly cared for. Who felt that the Western democratic model ensured that the ruling class would continue to exploit the working classes and the developing world would never be able to stabilize and grow their economies because of the constant threat of social unrest? To that end, under Hu Jintao's term of office, suppression of ethnic minorities such as the Tibetans was increased. In foreign policy, who aimed to grow China's economy and solidify it as a world power through the deployment of soft power? When dealing with Taiwan, he took a combination of hard and soft approaches, acquiescing to stances like international living space for Taiwan while not accepting de jure independence. He held a historic meeting with Ma Jingzhao of the KMT when he became president of Taiwan, when Ma became president of Taiwan in March 2008. And when he became pre um, and both parties agreed to the 1992 consensus which is basically the principle that there is only one China, but that Taiwan and the PRC interpret this in their own way. That's one thing that I find very, very interesting about the Chinese. They're, they're very willing to be like, okay, I still think that I'm right and you're wrong, but let's just say we interpret this differently and table it. I, I, I can't hate on it, honestly. The agreement dealt a blow to the hawkish American foreign policy regarding China, which had long attempted to recognize the Republic of China and Taiwan as the only legitimate Chinese government, which was then give the United States and the United Nations carte blanche to conduct peacekeeping operations and military interventions in mainland China under the guise that mainland Chinese were being oppressed by an illegitimate government. On March 26, 2008, U.S. President George W. Bush became the first U.S. president to recognize the 1992 consensus, and every president since him has ended up doing the same. They don't want to, but they kind of have to, and I think that's great. 
included in whose vision of international living space for Taiwan was the resumption of mail, trade, and direct air links between Taiwan and mainland China, which was called the Three Links. For the first time since 1949, mainland Chinese and Taiwanese were able to visit and trade with one another. In Latin America, Africa, and throughout Southeast Asia, who positioned China as an alternative to the International Monetary Fund as a means of acquiring development funds. This rings a bit hollow when you consider that China has been a member of the IMF since its inception in 1949 and now has a greater percentage of quotas and voting shares than the UK and Canada at 6%. For context, this means that China either actively participated in the promulgation of austerity measures like the Washington Consensus Policy Prescriptions, or at the very least passively benefited from these for decades. Then after the global South is hollowed out by these policies, China, who has again for decades been gathering their strength in the IMF, buying up quotas and shares from those developing countries and developed nations alike, they start to position themselves as the alternative to the same policy prescriptions that help fund Chinese economic expansion and put China in the position to offer itself as an alternative in the first place. Now, allow me to clarify that the IMF under the Bretton Woods Agreement, which started in 1945 and collapsed between 1968 and 1973, was a totally different beast than the IMF now. Currencies were backed by bullion, and most of the global South was still colonized or in the process of gaining independence. So they weren't really being exploited by the IMF because they were still being exploited by the people who created the IMF. As I explained in my American and European socialism episodes, the austerity measures came into play post-independence as a means of debt trapping formerly colonized nations so that the global North could continue to exploit their younger labor force and ample natural resources. The PRC under Mao likely joined the IMF in the spirit of international cooperation following World War II and as a means of securing funding to rebuild war toward China. By the time Mao died in 1976, the Bretton Woods Agreement had just collapsed three years prior, and China was in a precarious economic situation at the time, which Deng Xiaoping used to justify opening up to the United Nations. So if I'm going to accuse any Chinese leadership of benefiting from global self-exploitation, it would likely be Zhang Zemin, who was the leader of China during the worst years of the Washington Consensus, who was regarded for addressing the who was also regarded for addressing the corruption and graft within the CCP and allowing greater transparency to party meetings, memos, and conferences. Who was not explicitly a populist, but he did use populist language when just addressing the public, such as his June 2007 speech at the Central Party School, where he praised ordinary Chinese for their resiliency in the face of economic downturns and stressed the need of party cadre and private sector moguls alike to do their part to stem economic inequality in China, which had been growing steadily since the Ding years. Hu Jintao's legacy is generally regarded as positive. He led China through a decade of economic growth, successfully hosted the 2008 Beijing Olympics and the 2010 Shanghai Expo, normalized relations with Taiwan and the KMT, modernized Chinese infrastructure in the rural and urban areas of China, eliminated agricultural taxes on small farmers, managed the SARS epidemic very well, and expanded healthcare for millions in its wake, leading to almost universal coverage in China at present. 
Critics of Hu Jintao say that his aggressive approach and soft power has put significant stress on China's relations with India, which is another nuclear power, several Southeast Asian countries, and with Japan. Despite the stated claims of the socialist harmonious society, whose critics in China point out that China's Gini coefficient raised by raised to 0.47 by 2010, which indicates a concerning and unsustainable level of economic inequality. They also note that China's internal security budget outpaced the military budget throughout whose tenure, even as social protests increased. A wave of military scandals that came to light shortly after whose retirement suggested that he was not interested in tackling corruption in the military and delegated that responsibility to other party cadres who were not diligent. All in all, Hu Jintao's technocratic approach to governance is viewed favorably in China, and his eight honors and eight shames moral doctrine has been added to the Chinese constitution alongside Mao's, alongside Mao Zedong thought, Deng Xiaoping theory, and Zhang Zemin's three represents. In a departure from his predecessors, however, Hu Jintao's eight honors and eight shames are a set of moral codes for all Chinese to follow rather than setting social and or economic goals and doctrines. Hu chose to focus on moral codes because he felt that the previous generation were overly consumed with making money and were not instilling proper Chinese socialist moral ideas about supporting your fellow man to the youth of China. After the publication of Hu's Eight Honors and Eight Shames, there was a significant increase in youth programming geared towards teaching and demonstrating Chinese values and consumer advertising decreased sharply as well. Chapter 7 Xi Jinping and the State of the Present-Day People's Republic of China. And now the end is near, and so I face the final premiere. It took me forever to finish this episode. Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. In November 2012, at the 18th Party Congress, Xi Jinping was appointed as the General Secretary of the CCP and the Central Military Commission. Traditionally, holding these two positions effectively makes one the number one guy in mainland China. Xi Jinping is the son of a formerly purged revolutionary named Xi Zhongyun, and once his father was purged, he lived in a cave for a little while, which I thought was fascinating. Xi has the distinction of being the first premier to be born after the Chinese Civil War and the establishment of the PRC, and as part of his commitment to fighting corruption and enforcing party unity, Xi has expelled or forced the retirement of several prominent party members, some of whom marched with Mao in 35. This has made him divisive amongst senior party officials and older Chinese citizens, but made him immensely popular amongst younger Chinese citizens and Chinese living abroad. Xi ramped up the anti-corruption and power centralization of efforts of his predecessor and outlined an eight-point guide of rules on conducting party business intended to curb corruption. If anybody was wondering why it's always eight immortals or eight honors and eight dishonors or an eight-point guide, it's because the number eight is considered lucky and symbolizes wealth in Chinese culture. Eight is pronounced ba in Mandarin Chinese, which sounds similar to fa, which means to make a fortune. Xi's goals were not only to root out existing corruption, but also ensure overall party unity and loyalty. Xi created centrally dispatched inspection teams and the National Supervision Commission, whose job it is to gain a more in-depth understanding of the operations in provincial and local party organs. 
The result was the demotion, fining, or otherwise sidelining of party officials at all levels of government. The Shanxi Provincial Cabinet lost more than half its members, and some members of the Politburo Standing Committee were even forced into retirement after the scandal. This is kind of similar to what Vladimir Putin did after winning the Russian presidency for the first time in 2000. He ran as an independent, which signaled a change from the established political parties that had been running Russian politics since 91, and he came out swinging by taking on the kleptocrats that had been selling off Russian state assets like oil and gas. He also took a hardline stance against Chechen separatists and other minority groups, silencing journalists and media outlets that spoke out against him. Russia had been in a turbulent state from the dissolution of the USSR until then, and Putin promised balance and honor restored, and via censorship and elimination of all his possible political enemies, he did pretty much deliver on that. What ordinary working people in both China and Russia and in the United States want to see is a strong leader who holds the powerful accountable, and to most Chinese and Russians, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin did just that. Now, I'm a more cynical person, and and the way that I understand it is in taking down powerful rivals, both Xi and Putin have installed loyalists in their place, and working people haven't really gained anything from these Game of Thrones-type situations But if they like it, I love it. And so maybe I'm just being a hater. In addition to tackling corruption, Xi is known for his expansion of censorship in China. In the years following Mao's death, Chinese leaders like Zhang Zemin and Hu Jintao had shied away from exercising a lot of state control over the media and the press. But under Xi, there's been a resurgence in censorship aimed at curbing the infiltration of Western values. The controversial document number nine is an internal Chinese document that was published in July 2012, and it warns against the seven dangerous Western values of constitutional democracy, universal values, which are in contrast to Maoist Chinese-centered communist values. The idea of individual rights over the rights of the collective, as stated by the party, pro-market neoliberalism, media independence, meaning private ownership of media conglomerates, historical nihilism, and the questioning of Chinese-style socialism. I don't really have anything else to say about it, except this is kind of more of the same Xi Jinping solidifying and centralizing his control over the Chinese government and what constitutes Chinese socialism at this point. Every premier has done this at the start of their term, and every premier has laid the groundwork for their predecessor, uh, for their successor to expand and interpret Chinese socialism in their own way. Well, I wouldn't say Mao that Mao did... But Mao also had factions competing to inherit his legacy when he died. And despite being a very prolific writer and speechmaker, his last instructions were kind of vague and vague enough that every leader since has been able to build upon them in such a way that Maoism is now drastically different from what it was in 1976. Aside from creating new committees centralized around himself in the areas of national security and the internet, censoring images that compare him to Winnie the Pooh and abolishing term limits in 2018, Xi Jinping's biggest accomplishment has been the Belt and Road Initiative. Belt and Road is short for Silk Road Economic Belt, and it refers to the ancient Silk Road, a network of land routes that ran through East Asia all the way to North Africa, and it was a hub of economic activity from the 2nd century BC until the 18th century. The Belt and Road Initiative is the culmination of Hu Jintao's vision of Chinese soft power. 
It's an infrastructure development strategy that aims to boost China's international profile by investing in infrastructure projects in over 70 countries worldwide. Essentially, what happens is that the leader of a country and a de- the leader of a developing nation, right? He he promises all sorts of things in order to get elected. People like buildings. Buildings give them the sense of feeling of progress, success. They like to see buildings go up. When people see new buildings go up, they tend to think that the economy is doing better and thus their future looks bright. So the leader of this developing nation has to leverage what he does have, right? Which for old time's sake, let's just say is oil in order to get the money and heavy machinery and yada, yada, yada needed to construct buildings so that his people will be happy and he can stay in power. With the Belt and Road Initiative, China takes the place of old stalwarts like the IMF and loans this developing country the money and equipment needed so that they can make buildings and roads. People love roads, especially highways. People go crazy for highways. Um, They loan them what they need, usually with low or no interest. China also differs from the IMF in that the terms in the terms and conditions of these loans, they usually don't require... Well, they actually explicitly don't require the developing nation to like sell off their valuable assets. Like for instance, and this is like fucking egregious at this point. The IMF made Angola, the country of Angola in South Southwest Africa, sell off like what? 50% of their stake in their largest oil uh, extraction and refinery firms. 50% of the stake. Do you know what, that, what that's going to do to Angola's like profile with every international bank? But they made them sell it that off. And I swear to God, 50% of the most lucrative resource in your country, that's got to be worth billions, multiple, multiple billions. They made them sell that off as a condition to get $488 million dollars. You can kiss my $488 million ass. That's not enough for me to be selling off half of my fucking oil assets. Gotta be tripping. So with Chinese loans, they don't really require you to do all that shit. All they require is when I want my money, bitch, I better get it. Now they don't tell them to cut social services either. Why do they always ask them to cut social services? Because they don't want these countries to be socially stable. The catch is, though, that in order for these partnerships to be beneficial to the Chinese domestic economy, the materials and heavy machinery have to be bought by Chinese firms and Chinese construction and development firms have first priority for the overseas contract. This tends to cause friction in the developing country where construction companies and local firms already exist and are in need of clients. Now, it is the central idea of every business owner that their government must support them in everything that they do and in times of need be their biggest client. Thus spoke John Maynard Keynes. So the local business community in the developing nation starts to feel left out of all of this growth and stuff unless they can latch on to the Chinese firm as a subcontractor, which most of them do. There's a lot of debate over whether the Belt and Road Initiative is imperialism and if this makes China no longer a socialist country. My opinion is that the Chinese are not seeking international consensus over whether or not they're socialists. 
No one is handing out true socialist medals or seals of approval, nor is there a standard definition of what a socialist country should look like. So that discussion is not even worth having because first and foremost, the Chinese did not ask you. Uh, Now, as far as Belt and Road being imperialist, I don't believe that's quite accurate either. Socialists typically derive their understanding of imperialism from Lenin's 1917 book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. In this book, Lenin defines imperialism as the process by which, in order to generate more profits, banks, corporations, and governments come together to finance the exportation of capital to the developing world. In order to ensure that these people, that the people in these countries remain compliant, Eventually, these monopolies of capital use their economic influence and military might to either pressure the underdeveloped nation into doing what they say, or they just take over the country completely. In the case of China and the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese have the Panshil Treaty of 1954, commonly known as the Five Principles of Peaceful Coexistence, which, in theory, keeps them from doing this. This treaty was initially between China and India and is now included in every treaty or consensus that China signs with a sovereign nation. In it, the Chinese make a promise to mutually respect sovereign territory, um, mutual non-aggression, mutual non-interference in foreign government affairs, equality and mutual benefit, and peaceful coexistence. The irony is, of course, that China signed this treaty with India first, and the two countries have been at each other's necks over their borders ever since. The Panchil Treaty serves as a cover for Chinese diplomatic relations, which are generally less abrasive and militaristic than the U.S. or the U.K. In the eight years since the launch of the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese have not seized any sovereign assets for repayment, nor has the Chinese military been deployed to ensure cooperation. Rather than foreign nations being pressured to change their policies to appease the Chinese, these countries are changing their policies to appeal to the Chinese. An example of this is like in Tanzania, where the socialist Chamacha Mapinduzi Party modified Tanzanian laws regarding foreign land ownership to allow Chinese businesses to set up in the country after Tanzania and China forged a partnership to expand the port of Dar es Salaam. Some political scientists and economists say that the African continental free trade area, which is now the largest free trade zone in the world, was established to better appeal to Belt and Road Initiative But in the last five years, China has significantly curtailed its lending, especially in Africa, I guess maybe hoping to see some larger projects completed first. And also, like, you know, you had the pandemic and all that type of stuff happening. And well, neither a borrower nor a lender be, I guess, at the end of the day. I say all of this to say that while China's foreign and economic policy is not perfect and does not always adhere to the five principles of peaceful cooperation. Look up China's salami slicing strategy for more information on that. It is an imperialist by the Marxist-Leninist definition because the Chinese do not usually exert military force in pursuit of their economic aims and usually does not seek to exert influence over sovereign nations either. I say usually, and I'm saying it that way because China's territorial disputes are about recovering what they see as Chinese territory, not colonizing what has always been sovereign land. 
Now, I'm not taking sides on this because these lands have changed hands a lot of times over the years. And the China, but if the Chinese see the land or, you know, islands or whatever as theirs, it's technically not an imperialist enterprise to fight for your land back. But again, it's not my business. So there you have it. Chinese socialism from the fall of the Qing dynasty to the present day People's Republic of China. I've learned an extraordinary amount while researching and writing this series, and I hope you all have as well. This concludes my series on the history of the word socialism and my series on the words you misuse. The world has changed so much since I started that series, and I thank each and every one of you for sticking with me. Next episode, I'm going back into antiquity to start my next series, which is going to be called The History of Christianity. Join me next time for more Musings on History.